This is a story about epiphanies in every sense of the word. Epiphany as in an illuminating aha moment, and epiphany with a capital E, referring to the feast in the Christian tradition marking the arrival of the Magi, the three wise men as they're known, who have followed the star to Bethlehem to find the babe in the manger. Both stories we'll hear bring the music of Johann Sebastian Bach together with the poetry of Robert Frost. And they both have to do with how alive Bach is to us today. Robert Heilman of St. Paul's Episcopal Cathedral in San Diego returned to cello playing at a music camp where he joined others in performing Bach's Brandenburg Concerto No. 3. He writes, You may know Robert Frost's poem, The Tuft of Flowers. The scene is a hayfield in the late morning when the speaker has arrived to turn the newly mown hay. The mower, having been there at dawn to complete his work, has gone his way. The speaker finds, thanks to a determined butterfly, that in the middle of the field of cut grass, the mower did his job well, leveling all of the hay. But, on purpose, he has left standing a single tuft of flowers. The mower in the dew had loved them thus by leaving them to flourish, not for us, nor yet to draw one thought of ours to him, but from sheer morning gladness at the brim. Heilman explains, On a recent evening I came upon a tuft of flowers, not real flowers, metaphorical ones, notes on a page, the cello line of the third Brandenburg Concerto. J.S. Bach was the early morning worker who left us the splendor of that concerto, not with any thought of ours to him, but with the same motives that the mower had, simple beauty. Come on, Heilman, said another player. Here's the cello score. So I sat down and shared the score with her and about 10 or 15 others of us forming a small chamber orchestra. There is no easy Bach, but we started slowly, counting two measures of four-four time, and we read through the first movement. Then we read through it again, this time up to tempo. I was keeping up. I was reading the score, and I was keeping up. The third time through, I was playing the music, not merely sawing out the notes on the cello. By the time we got to the final chord, I suddenly understood what Bach saw when he wrote this work. The beauty of sharing it with this small impromptu chamber group and with Bach filled me with inexpressible joy, connecting with Bach as the speaker in the poem came into contact with the mower, though he was long gone. Frost writes, But glad with him I worked as with his aid, and dreaming as it were, held brotherly speech with one whose thought I had not hoped to reach. I sat there beaming, perfectly ecstatic, reveling in the epiphany of the moment. I can only say that I cannot remember any musical experience before in my life that produced the level of elation I experienced that evening, of being able to play the music of perhaps our greatest composer, coupled with genuine gratitude for Bach's genius, for the music that reaches across nearly 300 years, and for his bequeathing us his gift of a tuft of flowers.
It was an epiphany for Heilmann. It's as if time has collapsed, Bach speaking to him and us here and now through his music, through the power and beauty of his music. Christopher Jackson is the recently named music director and conductor of the Bach Choir of Bethlehem, the seventh in that august line of leaders. And we'll hear in his voice and the story he tells us just how alive Bach is for him today. In anticipation of the upcoming performances of parts four, five, and six of the Christmas Oratorio by Bach this Saturday, December 10th, at the First Presbyterian Church of Allentown, and again Sunday, December 11th, at the First Presbyterian Church of Bethlehem, four o'clock each afternoon. We had a chance to speak by phone with Dr. Jackson about music that tells the story of the Feast of Epiphany and the visit of the three wise rulers from the East. The actual year, 2023, will be celebrating our 125th anniversary. The Bach Choir was, was founded in 1898, and some of the first pieces that we performed were also the first time these pieces were heard in the United States. And, and particularly, those pieces are the Mass in B minor, which came first in, in our performance. And then in 1901, we actually premiered on American soil the Christmas Oratorio, which we are performing this Christmas season. Did you have that in mind in choosing it? Well, I think my predecessor, Greg Funskeld, likely did. He programmed the first half of the Christmas Oratorio last year, and we're finishing the piece by doing the second half this year. And um, Greg was an extremely thoughtful programmer, so I haven't asked him, but I'm, I'm pretty certain he had this in mind. We talked with you the last time, I think, Christopher, about your experience with the various works of how about you and Christmas Oratorio? Is it something that you've had a long-standing association with? Well, you know, I've performed it a few times. I, I have a combination of conducting and singing under my belt. I'm not a typical conductor in the sense that I'm a, a keyboardist or instrumentalist. I, I can get around the keyboard, but I've done a great deal of singing, and particularly early music, and, and including Baroque. So I've sung the Christmas Oratorio many times, but this is my first time as a conductor, and I'm just thrilled. It's, it's a blast to finally get my hands on this piece. And I love the freedom of the choice of words, a blast, because that tells us something about who you are and that the music is every bit as alive for you today. Well, you know, sometimes as a performer who also conducts, you end up experiencing many other people's interpretations. And it's funny, my undergraduate mentor, uh, he told me, you know, Chris, the reason I know you're supposed to be a conductor is because I see you chomping at the bit to say what you want to say about this music. And um, I, I had reservations about being a conductor for a long time. I, I don't love telling people what to do, just as a sort of personal practice. But I do have a lot to say about music, and so that, that's very much what I mean. The music is alive, and, and I'm very excited to help us say something that I don't know if I've heard before when I've performed it. What about the basics? What is an oratorio? Tell us about this form and how Bach might be using it here. Oratorios at their heart are dramatic pieces with a narrative. The easiest correlation you could, you could go to is it's essentially an opera 
but it's on sacred themes. So there, there are a couple of differences. But what I mean is that we have a variety of forms and structures like choruses, arias, recitatives, and sometimes, not always, sometimes there are named characters. So, for example, Mendelssohn has a, a famous oratorio, Elijah, where Elijah is just one of many named characters that is played by a soloist. And Bach does this sometimes. You know, the St. Matthew Passion and the St. John Passion are also oratorios in the sense that it's a dramatic narrative structure, and there are some named characters. Not all the soloists in those pieces play named characters, but you do have Jesus and Pilate and Peter, etc., being played um, at different times. The thing about the Christmas Oratorio, really, is that there are not named characters. There is an evangelist who is there to advance the biblical story, and he sings entirely in recitative, and that is punctuated by arias sung by the soloists that are more reflections on the story or on a personal response to the story. And then the chorus has multiple roles in the Christmas oratorio. Bach always opens with a big choral movement. And I think the best way to describe that is actually it's just setting the tone. So announcing the the emotional and even theological concepts that Bach wants to address in, in those particular cantatas in the oratorio. But then my favorite thing about the Christmas oratorio is actually the chorales. And chorales are not always present in oratorios by other composers. So in that way, this really is a, a very unique to Bach sort of oratorio. Chorales are um, very simple settings that, that go all the way back to this tradition of chorale writing. Think of it as a hymn tune in church, you know. You'll have a melody, and these melodies have existed for many years, even before Bach. So Martin Luther even wrote, you know, many chorale tunes, chorale melodies. But the, the modern correlation is, is, is a hymn melody. And then they're harmonized in different ways. You know, the, the chorales that, that Bach is setting here, they're sung in four-part harmony with, with beautiful poetry. Actually, I consider them to be the most personal reflections. In, in the Christmas Oratorio. So it's, it's like Bach will be telling this narrative story, and there are some emotional reflections in the aria, but then when you get to the chorale, it's finally a place where you, as the listener, can put yourself into the story. That's what these texts of the, of the chorale tunes do for you. It, it's from, from a very human and present perspective, as opposed to talking about a story that was in the past. So from the fifth cantata, and the Christmas Oratorio is actually a collection of six individual cantatas, and they're all about different aspects of the Christmas story. And the fifth cantata in the set is when the Magi are guided by the star to Bethlehem. And so the entire fifth cantata talks about the Magi and, and how they were led and some, some small reflections on that, really, it, it deals exceedingly with the concept of light, which runs throughout every, every section of this cantata. Bach takes the idea of the star guiding people, but then also in the arias, he talks about Jesus' presence is there to enlighten 
us or remove our blindness. So Bach is, is constantly, even in a poetic sense, referencing the concept of light. But then in the final chorale, which this is, for me, this is my favorite chorale in, in the entire Christmas oratorio, Bach, he, he makes a theological statement, really. The, the English translation is, there is no room in my heart. It is not a fine palace, but it's rather a dark pit. But as soon as your rays of mercy shine within there, I feel filled with warm sunlight. does there, it's very much about the human personal experience of being filled with an internal sense of light. And no, no part of the narrative, you know, that's the, the biblical narrative, brings it to that level of, of personal interaction. And, and even for Bach to reference, you know, that I am filled with light, turns it from something external, the star that's external, to what Jesus' presence is supposed to be for people who, who believe that. Christopher, you're giving us some real insight into what Bach was up to in the Christmas Oratorio, but maybe you'll tell us something about the Genesis. How and why did he set about composing this six-part oratorio? So it, it wasn't uncommon for Bach to need to write a cantata for the feast days in the Christmas season. You know, you hear the phrase, the 12 days of Christmas. It, Christmas actually is a short season in the liturgical calendar. And there are important feast days within that short season. And so Bach would have to write a cantata, usually based on the required texts in the liturgical calendar for that feast day. What Bach did, actually, over the course of one Christmas season, 1734-1735, he wrote six individual cantatas, but he actually broke tradition. He decided not to always use the required texts of the day for the cantata, and instead he created the, the narrative to tell a, a story instead of relying on the, the texts that were required of the day. So, for example, he chose texts almost entirely from Luke and Matthew to help gain a cohesive narrative, as opposed to skipping around what the, the required texts would have made him do. It was clear that he had this idea in mind to link all six cantatas, even though initially they were only performed one at a time on these six different feast days. We think that he 
had a, a job in mind. Bach was Bach was looking to to move to greater positions, you know, in Germany where he could have greater resource and and likely wouldn't have to teach as much as he was in Leipzig. Part of his job was really as a schoolmaster, and we think he wanted freedom from that to to be more full time musician, but. The idea, essentially, is that he could prove that he could write these large, dramatic works as potentially a, an interview for a position in Dresden. So that's, that's why we think he, he tied them together. But either way, you know, it really is a beautiful masterpiece. But you can't, you can't really escape the fact that all six cantatas feel very different. And that's a funny thing about it when you listen to this versus something like the St. Matthew Passion or St. John Passion. That's clearly a large, cohesive thing. But, you know, people, listeners and lovers of Bach's music have even commented before that listening to all six cantatas together at the same time is a bit trying. You don't quite reach the full experience where you, you think of it as everything being beautiful, Whereas if you split it up into two halves, you, you tend to fare a little bit better. And so you are doing four, five, and six? That's correct. And so where do we pick up with four? You told us about five. What's the focus in four? Four is, you know, the feast day that it's for is the, the naming and circumcision of Jesus. So these two things happen at the same time. Traditionally, the child wouldn't be named until their circumcision day. But what Bach chooses to focus on in this is actually what the name of Jesus means. It's, it's, so, it's so interesting, the concept of the name of Jesus and what Jesus does in someone's life. It appears somewhere around 50 times, either Jesus' actual name or what his name stands for. And that's the point that Bach tries to make in, in that cantata. It sounds very courtly or royal. Um, it's got a stateliness about it, and Bach is clearly making making some sort of point that that royalty, the Prince of Peace, has has finally come to earth. The last chorale in the fourth cantata is particularly interesting to me. Every line starts with Jesus's name, except for the last line. And this is a, a quirk of German. When you're addressing Jesus in a formal manner, you would use the full name, Jesus. But the last line of this chorale, Bach picks a text or, or chooses it where he says Jesus's name as Jesu, without the final S. And what that indicates is an intensely personal relationship. It's, it's a really beautiful theological twist that Bach puts at, at the end of that cantata.
just one detail and it opens up so <laughs> much. We've been to four or five. What's the focus of number six? Cantata six, it still deals with the Magi, but this time the part in the story where Herod is attempting to convince them to go and do some reconnaissance and, and report back on Jesus, and, and so Herod can come and, and slay this potential threat to his rule. And, of course, we focus on that part of the story, but Bach uses that as the impetus to, to make music about the victory of, of Jesus over enemies. So broadly, that's what it's about. The opening and closing movements are very much about victory over enemies. And, of course, to do that, you know, Bach will use trumpets because they're, they're martial in many ways, but he, he tells that part of the story. But, you know, even then, the, the opening chorus, like I told you, they tend to set the scene for every cantata. The text of the opening chorus is, Lord, when our arrogant enemies snort. That is the, the literal translation of the, of the opening chorus of the, the last cantata, and it talks about how that if we are firm in faith, we will triumph over the arrogance of our enemies. And of course it relates to Herod, but, but again, there's something a little personal about it. Snort! Yeah, schnauben, actually, actually to snort. It's, it's amazing. We always know that when the Bach Festival is held in May and the B minor Mass is performed, that people make a pilgrimage to Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, to hear it because the music speaks so profoundly to our humanity and to the world in which we live, whether it be the 1898 world or 2022. And as, as an example of that, the Agnus Dei, Dona Nobis Pace, grant us peace in 1940s during the wartime. What would it have meant to hear that Agnus Dei as we go along in the Vietnam War? What would it have meant to hear grant us peace And I ask in reflecting, as you come to terms with how you understand the Christmas Oratorio, what are you finding that it might say to us today? Well, that's such a good question. I have have two answers. The first goes back to Cantata V, which I think you can tell at this point is the one that I'm particularly drawn to for, for all sorts of reasons. But there's a really beautiful poem by Robert Frost. The title is choose something like a star. And the, the poem talks about how looking to an external source can bring immense internal calm or peace or really even the motivation to continue from day to day. And that's what I hear in the fifth cantata, especially in that final chorale that I mentioned about taking something external, um, whether it's Robert Frost and you, you choose something that's physical and distant but representative, or, you know, in many faith traditions, it's choosing something that is outside of yourself to fix your attention on and to gain strength and peace. These two things are very related. And, you know, regardless of what one believes, there's some, there's some brilliance there in, in looking to something eternal, like a star, outside of yourself, as a means of, of holding, fixing your attention, and, and putting hope into it in some way. And I think that that is eternal. 
I don't think that ever goes away, whether it's sacred or secular. And it's a really beautiful thing, and, and Bach sets it so, so meaningfully in the final chorale of that cantata. The second answer I would give is a lot more for Bach aficionados out there. Bach actually sets the, if you know the St. Matthew Passion, there's a, a Passion Chorale melody that is used many times throughout that. And the English translation is, O Sacred Head Now Wounded. And, you know, it's about the suffering of Christ. really fascinating in the Christmas Oratorio is that Bach uses that same chorale melody twice, but it's really transformed. It's not, it's not full of the knowledge of suffering. Instead, it, it, it seems filled with this excitement about what life is to come. And for Bach to have used the same chorale melody in both the Passion, this piece detailing intense suffering, and the Christmas Oratorio, which is not about that at all, it's about this joyous coming to, you know, coming to the earth. It is, it's a really amazing thing, theologically, but I also think that it is very human in the sense that one can't really have joy without sorrow. Those two experiences are, are linked throughout the life of most humans, and I think the older we get, the, the more true we we find that to be. Dr. Christopher Jackson, music director and conductor of the Bach Choir of Bethlehem, speaking with us about the upcoming concerts featuring parts four, five, and six of Bach's Christmas Oratorio. The Bach Choir will be joined by the Bach Festival Orchestra with a special appearance by the Bel Canto Concert Choir. The recording we're hearing is featuring the Bach Choir of Bethlehem and Festival Orchestra.
The final chorale of part six of Bach's Christmas Oratorio, and in fact, the final chorale of the entire set of cantatas BWV 248 by Bach. We heard a conversation with Dr. Christopher Jackson, music director and conductor of the Bach Choir of Bethlehem, speaking with us about the upcoming concerts featuring parts four, five, and six of Bach's Christmas Oratorio. We have a chance to hear it in person December 10th at 4 o'clock, and that's a new start time. It's Saturday, December 10th at 4 o'clock, and that's at the First Presbyterian Church of Allentown. And then the next day, which would be Sunday the 11th, that will be the concert in Bethlehem. And that's a performance on December 11th at 4 in the First Presbyterian Church of Bethlehem. And you have a chance to actually view it online on Sunday if you can't get to either in-person performance. And you just go to the Bach Choir website, bach.org, B-A-C-H dot org, to find out about joining the virtual performance on Sunday, December 11th at 4. Again, it is parts 4, 5, and 6 of the Christmas Oratorio the Bach Choir to be joined by the Bach Festival Orchestra with a special appearance by the Bel Canto Concert Choir and the soloists, soprano Nola Richardson and its mezzo-soprano Yannick Kritz and tenor Lawrence Jones with baritone David Newman. And the December 10th concert will be at 4 o'clock and that's at the First Presbyterian Church of Allentown. And please note that that's a new start time Traditionally, it had been an evening performance. It will be an afternoon performance on Saturday, December 10th at the First Presbyterian Church of Allentown. And then the December 11th Sunday performance will be at 4 o'clock at the First Presbyterian Church of Bethlehem on Center Street. And that performance will be streamed live online. And you just go to bach.org to pick up a link so that you can join them then. The other thing that Dr. Jackson hoped we'd tell you is that the audience is invited to join the choir in singing traditional carols at the conclusion of each concert. That's a tradition, and it will continue.